Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Senator Harris, I'm not embarrassed. Pronounce it right, cause she's coming up. She's bringing me sense and plexiglass. Monty Bay Queen, make the ticket complete. Sweet, freaking out Mikey P. All right, uh, a song perhaps written in a slightly happier moment. Uh, we're going to begin the, today's show uh, by talking a little bit about the political field in 2024, which I know seems like a long time away. And the reason that you think it's a long time away is because you're not thinking you're running for president in 2024. If you were, if your name was Amy Klobuchar, you would probably feel a little bit differently about that statement. Later on in today's show, we're going to talk about uh, whether or not cats and dogs can get COVID. Yes, they can. Uh, are there vaccines for them? No, there aren't. We'll explain why that is. And at the end, we will have a lengthy discussion about what is wrong with Eric Clapton. Because if we don't get that straightened out, I don't think even the infrastructure bill will really help that much. I mean, the Eric Clapton situation has to be dealt with first. But right now, yeah, let's talk about what's what's happening right now in the Biden administration, in the Biden-Harris alliance, and how that might play out over the next few years as we approach another presidential election. Here to do it is somebody who's been writing about that. Alex Thompson is a White House correspondent for Politico. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So... Uh, Maybe we should just begin by sort of looking at the present moment. And and yes, the you know, obviously the next presidential election is a long way away. This administration hasn't even been one year in office. But there's some odd things going on right now. We have actually a booming, thriving economy by most measures. Uh, we have the passage of a somewhat bipartisan, massive, almost unprecedented infrastructure bill. And yet there is this feeling that shows up in polls that things are not good in this country and people are not happy uh, about the current leadership. Maybe you could embellish that a bit. Yes, and actually we had some polling just yesterday uh, at Politico Morning Consult about Americans also having much more concerns about President Biden's um, health than they did before the election a year ago. So um, to your point, there are a lot of top lines to be proud of. Everyone would probably say that things are better now than they were a year ago. Um, and with regards to the vaccine, with regards to the economy, yet there is sort of an ennui, a a tiredness of like, can we get out of this um, ever that I think has really hurt the president's standing. And, And in addition to that, has made a lot of Democrats question if President Biden is really serious when he says that he's going to run again in three years. Yeah. So this this could be a temporary 
condition. It could be a communication issue. It could be a perception problem that can be remedied in some way. But but right now, I mean, yeah, you've got people in polling saying they're more worried about the economy than they have been in the last decade, including like the middle of the pandemic when things were really bad. The economy was shut down. Uh, so there's something wrong. And it does seem to be at least partly a perception problem. Uh, then there's, yeah, the sense of Joe Biden's age. He's going to turn 79, I think, in a few days. Um, and so, Typically, in that situation, we would be looking at Vice President Harris as the presumptive nominee. This is as close to a coronation or seniority promotion as there is in politics. If the sitting president isn't going to run or has finished his or her two terms, the vice president almost always is getting the nod. But it doesn't seem, to your point, to the point of your article, as though a lot of other people are stepping back and letting the road be plowed for Kamala Harris. Yes, uh, Kamala Harris is wobbly beginning. Now, we can go into the many reasons for that wobbly beginning. But the truth is that, you know, her sort of tough start these first 10 months have emboldened ambitious Democrats who have presidential aspirations, whether or not it's A.B. Klobuchar, whether it's uh, Cory Booker, whether it's maybe new faces on the block, like uh, Stacey Abrams, like um, you know, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, a lot of these people are watching this very closely. Now, it's a delicate balance because you don't want to undermine the current incumbent who has said that he's going to run pre-election. But I can tell you that they are making active moves. In fact, after we published our article that showed that Cory Booker was keeping in touch with people in New Hampshire, just this morning, it annou- he announced that he's going to go up to New Hampshire uh, in December for a big fundraising event. Now, Cory Booker represents New Jersey, which is far away from New Hampshire. So really the only reason you would be going up there is if you have still future presidential ambitions. And I can tell you that uh, Vice President Harris at the moment isn't scaring any of them. Right. And and so uh, on the other hand, you've got uh, the f- first uh, ever um a vice president of color who's both uh, um, a black person and a South Asian person. You've got a Democratic Party that really needs to win a lot of jump balls every election, right? They 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 put together a, a kind of an interesting coalition, but they can't afford to bleed out from that coalition. And so to ditch or kick to the curb, Vice President Harris wouldn't go over very well. On the other hand, Vice President Harris has already done things to alienate other parts of that coalition, especially Latino voters. Talk about that. Yes. No, this is there's always um, advantages and disadvantages to being vice president. One of the disadvantages is that you are taking orders and that you are going to, uh, you know, follow the company line, as it were. So the way you saw this in particular was when Vice President Harris went down to Guatemala earlier this summer, and then she gave a speech that was incredibly stark when she said, do not come to migrants. Now, that rubbed a lot of people, not just down in the Northern Triangle the wrong way, but definitely uh, many Latino activists and really big personalities in America the wrong way. Jorge Ramos, who is perhaps the most influential newscaster in Latino community, wrote a scathing op-ed um, after her remarks and basically uh, questioned her because her, both of her and he basically asked what had happened if people had said to your parents, do not come, recognizing the fact that Vice President Harris comes from a family of immigrants. So you could see 
that really come to the fore? And there are already people, ambitious Democrats like Julian Castro, who have staked out uh, ground to her left on that issue that if they all are in a primary again, you could see come up. So we have so many known unknowns, uh, to use the Rumsfeld equation. And, and a lot, one of the known unknowns is ultimately assuming that President Biden doesn't seek a second term. What's his political profile like when it comes time to potentially crown a successor? successor? But, but one thing that we're seeing early here is, you know, something less than wholehearted support. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, there's been some reporting today uh, that uh, that I guess Vice President Harris said she doesn't feel underused. Uh, she's very, very excited about the work that uh, they have accomplished. This is an interview with, with uh, Good Morning America. Um, but, you know, I mean, one thing that I think that you reported on, Chris Dodd, who we know quite well here and who is, you know, mm. a close, close advisor uh, of, of President Biden and who, parenthetically, seemed to have a few problems with uh, Kamala Harris during the vetting process for the vice presidential spot. Um, you know, he didn't sort of say, well, she's got it if she wants it. He said something like she'd be on a list. It's hard to imagine a short list that didn't include her. That feels like damning with faint endorsement. I couldn't have put it any better myself. The fact is that it wasn't just interesting by the fact that he said, you know, Harris would be a strong name among many others, which is what he sort of insinuated. But what was also very interesting is that even as Biden has said that he intends to run for election, has told people that publicly and privately, uh, the fact is that Chris Dodd, who's as close to Biden as you, you know, as you can get without, you know, as a person that is outside of the White House, he raised the possibility that Biden is not going to run for re-election and made it sound like it is actually very much in in the cards. And that was um, just as interesting as his sort of like little elbow to Vice President Harris. So as you looked at the field, I mean, I think you've already mentioned a lot of the names. You might not have said Elizabeth Warren, but that's another one. Some of these are same old faces from the last go round. Um, on the other hand, we've lived through a very turbulent period. We've seen somebody with, uh, you know, a very unconventional set of credentials uh, win in 2016 and come close in 2020. It does make you wonder whether or not the Democrats would wind up if they did have a short list or, or a long list, you know, having maybe sort of somebody who is, I guess Stacey Abrams might be the closest thing to somebody who, who's not a totally familiar face. Yeah, I mean, I would say Stacey Abrams. I would say uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer would probably uh, be in the mix. I mean, you know, other names that are potential are like Representative Ro Khanna, you know, who is a uh, was a, a co-chair on Bernie Sanders' campaign and would would likely take a look at it. You could even have someone like Val Demings, who is taking on Marco Rubio right now in the Senate, um, be a potential new face. So that those I didn't include in the article because. You know, I didn't have as much reporting to suggest they they uh, are are being taken seriously. But if you're looking for some new faces, you have to go. You know, you have to really look around and find some of them. But I would expect if Biden does not run again in 2024, uh, the majority or close to majority of names are going to be people we saw just this last time, including 
uh, Pete Buttigieg, who is currently Transportation Secretary. Yes, that would be a little bit of a, of a tightrope walk, assuming he stays in the cabinet. Um, and so I guess it's also worth noting that, you know, I said that the vice presidency, I mean, the reason that people take this job that has other reasons to be thought of as, as unappealing. But one of the reasons people take this job is that, you know, it is a springboard. It is a pretty straight walk uh, towards a presidential nomination. But but it's also not a really great job. And I mean, I, I saw one approval number for for Harris that was, I think, 28 percent, which would be, I think, tra- trailing pre- the president. It's possible to be vice president and be even less popular than a president whose popularity is waning. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe you could say something about just whatever kind of handicap the vice presidency is. Yeah, I mean, the the. I would say first that one poll uh, was a bit of an outlier, but the trend that you identified is very much true, which is that Vice President Harris has consistently trailed Joe Biden in popularity um, for most of the presidency. And it is sort of an odd dynamic. Now, Vice President Harris's office would say that you know, even the, the drawbacks that come with being vice president, such as that you really are, um, you know, a sidekick in many ways. You are not a powerful figure and you are so much at the mercy of uh, whoever the principal is. They would also say that uh, they've faced extraordinary scrutiny um, that is beyond most vice presidents. And I think that is true. Now, some some people would say that's because she's vice president to a very, very old man um, and has a much better chance of being the next president than most people in that role. Um, people in her office would also counter that a lot of it, it has to do with the fact that she is a black woman and South Asian. And you can see it in some of the coverage in conservative media that uh, seems to try to scare people, um, because, in part because Republicans had a hard time scaring people with just with just Joe. And so I think the combination of these factors that are endemic to the vice presidency but also that are unique to Kamala Harris have contributed to this dynamic where she, this is in some ways um, been a political, um, you know, political uh, drawback, um, even though she, she now has national prominence. All right. We're going to have to stop there. But Alex Thompson is a White House correspondent for Politico. We'll watch this story unfold. I am sure that we can count on Fox News and Newsmax and Breitbart to cover Kamala Harris in a way that is entirely fair and balanced. Uh, There won't be any problems like that at all. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to find out whether President Biden should get his dog vaccinated, whether he even could get his dog vaccinated for COVID. Is the dog the dog got kicked out of the White House? The dog back now? I don't even know. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We are back. So, you know, there hasn't been enough to worry about being a human being around other human beings during the pandemic. And... Also waiting for those llama antibodies. to. I actually took the llama antibodies very early. I just got them from a llama. Uh, and obviously, if you have a pet mink, first of all, why do you have a pet mink? Second of all, you, that should be very worrisome to you. Uh, what about zoo animals? What about cats and dogs? We are going to try to answer a lot of those questions right now with Emily Anthes, a science and health reporter for The New York Times. Anything we don't get to, you can find in her article, Why Don't We Have a COVID Vaccine for Pets? Um, so, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, let's start with dogs and cats, because that's what most of us have. Um, we now know that they can contract COVID, correct? Well, they can get the virus. Uh, so I, and I'm parsing that and being a little bit careful there is that a lot of them don't have symptoms. And right. so COVID is the disease. We know they can get the virus, but a lot of them don't get sick from it. So and and, and if they are going to uh, have the virus invade their bodies, presumably, at least here in the outset, is it going to come from from human transmission? Almost exclusively. So Almost all pets, dogs and cats that are getting this are getting this from their owners. Um, it seems like maybe a small number have gotten it from other animals. So there are like cats on mink farms that have gotten it from mink. But yes, your pet is getting it from you. Um, and the other thing that's important to say is that there are no documented cases of cats or dogs giving the virus to humans. So we are the ones giving it to them. So that would, in fact, begin to answer the headline question of your piece. Why is there no vaccine? Well, if they're getting it from us and they're not giving it back to us and they're not getting very sick, that would begin to explain why there's an, a huge ramp up. I mean, there's a lot of dogs and cats in this country, right? Yeah. And even though they can get it, I mean, for all of the, you know, hundreds of millions of dogs and cats in this country, it doesn't even seem that it's that common for them to get it from us. Um, you know, lots of dogs and cats live with people who have the virus and don't get it. And then, as you said, the ones who get it don't get very sick. And the ones who get it also don't pass it back to us. So those are all reasons why vaccinating um, these animals is not really a priority. Right. I mean, one of the things we also know about this disease and other diseases, and I'm about to ask a question that's kind of over both of our pay grades probably, is that they, these, <laughs> these diseases mutate and change and their profiles change, their transmission profiles change given the variants. I mean, you wouldn't really want a virus like SARS-CoV-2 hanging around in a population of hundreds of millions of animals if you could possibly avoid it simply because you really don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, this is, you know, kind of started out as a spillover story. Uh, I mean, if there's an argument for vaccinating dogs and cats, it would be why let the virus hang around in them? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I know you mentioned mink, and so that's a good counter example. So we know that not only do mink get the virus and get sick, but they pass it very easily to each other and they pass it back to humans. So that they are a priority to vaccinate. And that is because of just what you mentioned that you know there's concern that when the virus is passed around in mink, it will be mutating and then will get passed back to us in some mutated new form. With cats and dogs, on the other hand, scientists think that if humans weren't giving the virus to them, they wouldn't really be what are known as reservoirs for the virus. They're not really passing it to each other and they're not giving it to us. So in theory, as soon as we get the virus under control in us humans, it'll basically go away in cats and dogs. Right. So I think now it's maybe time to talk about one of the companies that you wrote about. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Zoetis uh, correctly, but yep. this is a yep. veterinary pharmaceutical company based in New Jersey. Uh, they started out, it looks sounds like they started out looking at this whole situation and specifically the story of a 17-year-old Pomeranian uh, in Hong Kong, uh, one of the early reports of the presence of the virus in a dog and thought, well, there's gold in them there, Hills, I and mean, there are a lot of dogs in the world. So then what happened? Yeah, I mean, so this is a company that makes a lot of veterinary medicines, veterinary vaccines. This is very much in their wheelhouse. And when they heard, you know, very early on in the pandemic that dogs were getting this virus, they thought, uh-oh, like this could be a problem. And they started working on dog and cat vaccines. Um, technologically, it wasn't a huge challenge. They came up with several promising vaccine candidates, did some early trials. They seemed like they were working well. But in the time it took them to do that, we got a lot more data about infections in pets. And we learned those things that we talked about, that animals aren't getting very sick, that they're not really passing it to each other, passing it back to humans. And so the priority or the urgency, I guess, of a pet vaccine started to diminish. Um, and at the same time, you had the USDA, which is what regulates animal vaccines here in the US, put out a statement last fall that basically said, we're not accepting applications right now for a dog or cat vaccine, that it's there's no benefit to that, essentially. So the company sort of filed that away. And, you know, they have said it's easy to go back to and pick up. So if what we know or the situation changes and suddenly it looks like we do need a dog and cat vaccine, they have formulations they can return to. But for right now, they're just not necessary. Yeah, we should say USDA is U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're the ones who would be uh, overseeing something like that. They're not inter interested in that. But apparently they did turn around and say, have you got anything that might work on minks? Exactly. And so that's sort of for the reasons I was mentioning before, because minks not only get it, but they pass it very easily to each other. There have been large outbreaks on mink farms and there's concern that it might mutate in minks and, and pass back to us. So what Zoetis did and what some other labs have done is, you know, that time tested strategy of pivot. And so they took the vaccine they initially developed for dogs and started testing it and formulating it for mink. Um, and they are in the process still of, of testing and, and trialing that. But we live in an uh, increasingly smaller planet. Uh, we are not the only country that has minks. Uh, so we know that, I mean, to whatever degree we feel is we can, that we can know things uh, about uh, biomedical advances in Russia, we know that they uh, have some kind of shot that they've approved 
what, for all, all carnivores, including mink? Is that how that works? I, I believe so. So I don't, um, you know, this is just sort of what's been reported. I'm, I haven't, you know, seen the data myself, but um, yeah, the Russian health authorities announced that they have authorized a vaccine for carnivores, you know, which includes everything from, you know, mink and foxes to good old cats and dogs. Um, and so apparently that is available in Russia now. Meanwhile, uh, in the words of Simon and Garfunkel, uh, it's all happening at the zoo. Uh, and so zoos have all kinds of animals there. And obviously there's this enormous body of knowledge about which animals get what uh, and who needs to get vaccinated. But on the other hand, you don't want this to be a completely unexplored and untreated area uh, if you want people to go to the zoo. So, so what are zoos doing about all this? Yeah, well, so zoos came into this, you know, sort of in the last minute or once they heard about these vaccines being in development, you know, several zoos had experience with their animals getting infected. You know, early on in the pandemic, there were tigers that got infected, there were apes, and there was a lot of concern because these animals are endangered. In a lot of cases, there aren't many left. They have really valuable genetics. And so zoos approached Zoetis and said, we heard you have an experimental vaccine. Can we try it? And so Zoetis sort of ramped up for that. It got, I should say, it has permission uh, from USDA to do this on an experimental basis and is sending its sort of experimental mink vaccine, which you may recall was initially a dog vaccine, out to zoos where it has become an ape vaccine and a tiger vaccine and everything else you can imagine. I mean, it seems as though this is this whole area is simultaneously an undiscovered country. I mean, this whole area of of animals, animal populations uh, manifesting or you know, testing positive for the virus. Um, I mean, there's sort of a lot that we don't know. We just found out within the last couple of weeks that large numbers of deer in the wild uh, are getting this virus. I don't know if we know how they're getting this virus, but it feels like, uh, you know, we don't quite understand the picture, but we're also trying to do something about it kind of, as usual, building a bridge while we're trying to walk across it, right? They're they're trying to throw a rope around the whole question of animals getting COVID. But uh, my sense is the, the understanding of all this is not all that complete. No, not at all. I mean, and think about how much we still don't know about this virus in humans. And, you know, we are humans and we have been studying it in humans for almost two years now. And, you know, think of all the other species that are out there. There are tons of them, and we know just a minuscule fraction of them of what we know about this virus in humans. So there's a lot left to learn. So there's somebody listening to this right now and thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll skip the zoo for a while, and I'm certainly not going to pet any deer, particularly ones that have runny noses. Uh, and But on the other hand, a lot of people do have dogs and cats, so I'd kind of like to circle back to them. So one thing that you reported is that, once again, you know, uh, what eighty-two percent of these animals are uh, are without symptoms, um, but it does appear that if anybody's going to uh, test positive for the virus, it's more likely to be your cat than your dog. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Cats seem to be more susceptible to infection than dogs. And and do do we know why that would be? We have some good theories. It's been hard to nail down exactly. Um, biology probably plays a role. So we know that the virus enters our cells by, by attaching to these receptors on our cells known as ACE2 
two receptors. And these receptors look different in every species. Um, and just for whatever reason, the cat receptor looks more similar to our own human receptors than the dog receptor does. So that's one theory that the virus just is better able to latch onto and enter cat cells. But there are also ideas about behavior. You know, there's some studies that found that like more pet cats sleep on the bed than pet dogs. And so they might be more exposed to humans when they're infected. It's probably honestly a combination of lots of factors. Yeah. And I mean, sort of paradoxically, if, we're, if you're kind of moderately symptomatic with anything, you kind of want your pet on the bed with you while you're sitting there waiting for your fever to go down. Uh, but so has there been any guidance from the CDC or anybody else about this? Let's say I test, God forbid, positive for COVID. You know, I'm, I'm mildly to moderately symptomatic, or maybe I'm not even symptomatic at all. Um, should I be isolating from my pets, isolating them from me, um, especially given the fact that it doesn't seem like they're going to be very likely to be symptomatic anyway? Is anybody giving any advice about how to think about that? Yeah, I mean, the advice is, you know, unfortunately, and I have a dog and cat myself and, and know how comforting that can be when you're sick, but you essentially, if you test positive for the virus, you want to treat your pet like any other human member of the family in that you want to isolate away from them. If you're going to be around them, you want to wear a mask. I mean, we transmit this to our pets the same way we transmit it to other members of our family, you know, through droplets in the air and through aerosols. So, you know, you should be treating your pets like anyone else when you're sick and trying to keep separate from them. So last thing to ask about this is in your article. It's not as though these pharmaceutical companies have completely given up on or wiped the slate clean of the idea of pet vaccines. The USDA doesn't seem that interested right now. Uh, on the other hand, you know, as we have indicated earlier, this could be a potentially rather robust market if there was some kind of reason to vaccinate uh, either dogs or cats. Uh, and so at least one company is DNA Sciences. Is that the one? They're the ones that are still working on a cat vaccine? Yeah, well, so they're not actively working on it. They're sort of in the same boat as Zoetis, where they did some initial studies, developed some candidates, and they're sort of on the shelf now as sort of, I, I think what the CEO told me was was just in case vaccines. If we need them, they can go back to them. All right. So that'll help uh, all you cats out there sleep the night. Uh, so Emily Anthes is a science and health reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for being with us today. Of course. It was great to be here. All right. And let's have a little music uh, to take us towards our conversation about Eric Clapton, which will be on the other side of this break. Yeah, you have to come and see at the zoo. 
called Stand and Deliver. It's by Van Morrison uh, and Eric Clapton. It, it might sound like a song of social protest about some terrible social evil. It's actually kind of an anti-lockdown song. Thank you so much, boys, for doing that. Before we uh, get into this particular conversation, I want to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer today and ideally every day, and Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this particular episode. So joining us to talk about Eric Clapton is uh, Jeff Edgers. He's been with us before, national arts reporter for The Washington Post, the author of Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the Song That Changed American Music Forever, and more recently, the author of a piece in The Post called what happened to Eric Clapton? So let us stipulate, first of all, that Van Morrison has had personality disorders for a really long time, maybe forever. But uh, Jeff, tell us a little bit more about why you would be writing a piece called What Happened to Eric Clapton. In other words, what are the signs that would make us think that something had happened to Eric Clapton? Well, I think the main thing is that as a guy who's 50 and saw Eric Clapton for the first time when I was, I think, 15 years old, I know Eric Clapton's music pretty well. I think I followed kind of his life a little bit. And one thing that was striking to me is that unlike, say, David Crosby and Graham Nash or Neil Young or Marvin Gaye or whatever, Eric Clapton is a guy who I couldn't remember him ever doing a protest song for anything. You know, Vietnam, no nukes. Katrina, I remember We Are the World. I don't remember Eric Clapton in there holding like Tina Turner's hand and We Are the World. So it struck me as odd that he was doing one, two, and then three anti-lockdown songs in like a few months. And so I was curious about that. And then he seemed to kind of double down on it by saying that he was only playing gigs at places that did not require people to be vaccinated. And again, I just didn't really understand that. So that's what made me start to look into it and to call people because it's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction and just say, Eric Clapton, he's, he's an anti-vaxxer. Uh, I don't know who, whose voice that is, but it's just my like very easy I th- voice. I think it's an old, yeah, fisher- um, an old fisherman who lives not too far from, from the coast. Old liberal fisherman. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, there's got to be more to it. And so rather than give my opinion, which I don't think is worth very much, I thought it would be valuable to, to try to reach out to people who actually knew Eric Clapton, worked with Eric Clapton, thought about him, and, and see what they were thinking. And it turned out they were just as baffled as the public. 
Yes. That's, that, by the way, is the, the strength of the approach of this piece. Uh, more people should tackle subjects this way. Uh, but I, I want to just circle back to that in a second and just kind of pause over a couple of things here. One of them is it's kind of interesting how, uh, I mean, it's mostly going, cutting the other way, but increasingly performers either, um, uh, you know, they, they either want or do not want to play in states that either do or do not require vaccines for their audiences. Uh, I'm sure you've seen things like Roseanne Cash posted, it's with deep regret that I must postpone my concerts in Clearwater, uh, Fort Lauderdale, and Stewart, Florida. The state of Florida has made it impossible for these venues to require proof of vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. And and Clapton is saying, I will only play in states that do not require proof of vaccination, right? Yeah, and I mean, Travis Tread, and I mean, there are artists out there. It's kind of like anything in politics. There are uh, artists, most of the rock and rollers seem to be on the left, right? But there are a few that lean to the right. And that's what we're looking at here. And like everything, you know, in every area of this pandemic, somehow, you know, lockdowns and vaccinations have become political, unfortunately. Right. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what's kind of happened, and and it's a weird thing because Eric Clapton again, he was not you know nine eleven, uh, Katrina, uh, the stock market crisis, Grenada, uh, Grenada. I don't know. He's never taken a stand on anything political. If you think about his songs, either you can't pick one out that's a protest song because there there aren't any. Right. You say Grenada, I say Grenada. Yeah, I, I even remember, I think it's in that documentary where um, Paul McCartney's trying to get this huge kind of post-9-11 concert together. And I think at one point he's telling Eric Clapton exactly how to play the solo on a song. <laughs> and Eric Clapton's looking at him going, no, I think I can probably figure out how to play guitar solo. Thanks so much, Paul. But you don't see him around, you don't see him around um, in those kinds of issues that much. Now, on top of all this, uh, as you have observed, he, he also gave an interview uh, on some kind of anti-vaxxer kind of show. Let me just uh, hear just a little bit of that. When the earliest part of the lockdown was going on, I saw some alternative data, which was sent to me uh, on YouTube, a guy called Ivor Cummings, who was showing really what could be happening. And from that, I discovered some other people who were offering alternative solutions to what was going to happen, what was happening, what was going to happen. And I thought that's everything they said made absolute sense. So I got, went online, I signed on the petition and everything. And, uh, and tried to follow that rhetoric as much as I could. And, uh, and, and, and the more I got into that, I more realized I was distancing myself. And that actually not only from the government, but from the rest of the public. Actually, I'm sorry, that was actually Aaron Rodgers doing an Eric Clapton impersonation. But um... Hey, that's not true. You're lying. <laughs> hey, look, here's the thing about that interview. And I'll just tell you exactly what it is. He has a friend named Robin Minotti, who, if you look him up, is an architect and in England, and is a very strong anti-vax person. And he has been kind of like Eric Clapton's conduit to the public. Um, He did an interview with him there that's 24 minutes long, and it's on a website called Oracle, um, which, you know, has like a lot of things that are anti-lockdown or anti-vax. 
But here's the thing about that interview, and I urge people to watch that because Eric Clapton didn't talk to me for this piece. And I wrote over and over again to his business manager and his publicist and said, the best thing Eric Clapton could do right now is to talk with me. Because if you watch that interview, it's a very humane, reasonable presentation of what seems unreasonable. And what you have is a man in his 70s who has all sorts of health issues, um, nerve issues, uh, emphysema. He was a drug addict for, for years. He was an alcoholic for years. Who's just scared of getting the vaccine and ultimately did get the vaccine. And then when he got the vaccine, and for some reason, he chose the AstraZeneca. You'll have to ask him. I couldn't. Um, but it really had terrible side effects. Uh, he couldn't play. He couldn't. Move, he couldn't feel his hands for a while. He said, and you know, for several days, and it really made him worry that he wouldn't be able to play guitar. Now, just bear in mind, just so we get the timeline right, he got vaccinated after he had already recorded "Stand and Deliver," mm. so he was already on the anti-lockdown thing before he got vaccinated. So, you know, you you actually just hit on something that I was going to ask you about, because earlier uh, in the conversation, you said, well, some artists kind of break left, some break right. But it, it seems with Clapton, like, first of all, it seems in general, there's this kind of weird, I don't know, Joe Rogan space where you're not exactly super conservative, but you've got all these doubts. Uh, and, and it seems like Clapton fits more into that category, right? It's not that he's staked out a specific political position. In fact, even when posing with Greg Abbott, uh, the governor of Texas, I mean, his people were careful to point out that he supports uh, reproductive rights and stuff like that. He doesn't endorse the Texas abortion ban. It's not really like he got super conservative in his old age, is it? Well, I don't know what he thought in his young age. I mean, there's a freedom, there's a thing in his that's running through. It's like this sort of like freedom of choice that seems to be part of this. You know, there's this one moment that it, it just, we wrote about it extensively in the story. It pleased nobody. Generally, I got attacked by the right and the left in a series of, you know, hate emails and tweets. Because in 1976, when he was super drunk, he went on stage and there was this national front organization, which was like a fascist nationalistic organization in England, which was really fighting against the idea of immigrants coming in from South Africa and taking the white man's job. You know, that's kind of the shorthand. And Clapton went on stage and delivered this like incredibly nasty racist rant with all sorts of profanity. That's kind of like the only thing he's done that you could remotely say was political. I mean, his apology was, I was so drunk, which you know, we've all had a couple too many, and most of us have not suddenly turned into Mel Gibson, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, it's hard to tell what that's all about. But that's the only other time where we've seen this this kind of, you know, this, this example. So I would say, you know, he's kind of like, I guess, a libertarian. That's like, I guess Joe Rogan claims to be a libertarian of some sort. But then you get into the questioning of science, and it gets a little wonky. I know the libertarians don't like the fact that their cause has been co-opted by anti-vaxxers in many cases. Um, that's up for them to have a you know political debate about it, but that that would be what I would interpret his feelings as. So the the thing that you did that I thought was so great is you just really talked to a lot of people, and I would kind of divide the, that group of people into musicians and and other people who know Eric Clapton, have known him for a really long time, and have to figure out how to fit all this into their current relationship with Eric Clapton, and then maybe people who don't know him quite as well, but musicians who nonetheless have to in some way 
think about Eric Clapton and think about what to think about Eric Clapton. But let's start with the first group, the people who know him pretty well. You talked to people who, I don't know, it was kind of like they were talking about some grandfather who's going to be coming for Thanksgiving who, you know, maybe doesn't, <laughs> maybe you don't want to get them started on certain subjects. Well, they were uncomfortable. I mean, that's the reality. Like Jim Keltner, who's like one of the great drummers of all time. He was in the Traveling Wilburys. He played on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass with Harry Nilsson, Fiona Apple. He's an amazing guy, sweetheart. Called him at home and, you know, I talk, this is a pattern. I talked to him quite a bit. This has really been on his mind. He was really upset about it. He told me a whole bunch of stuff. And then the next day he called back and said, hey, uh, do we have to have all that in the story? Do I have to be in the story? And it's like, Jim, I'm I'm sorry, you can't really just go off the record backwards, like retroactively. So we worked it through. But yeah, these people were, you know, uh, confused because to them, the thing that made Eric Clapton so special is that it was just always about the music. And if you actually watch him, he has an album that just came out and it has a film with it, a DVD with it. And if you watch him playing, did it during the pandemic with his band there's not any like it's very sweet and very nice and warm there's no talk about like lockdowns there's no like uh mention of politics it's just playing music so those people i think were miffed and didn't really understand what to make of any of this stuff because for whatever reason they're like scared to ask eric clapton i don't know why why can't you just say hey uh what's the story here um the one guy who did ask him Robert Cray didn't get an answer he liked, and it ended their friendship, you know? Yeah, just t- say a little bit more about Robert Cray. Rob- Robert Cray, obviously, you know, a-, a wonderful and amazing blues musician on his own, an artist of color. I think that may be significant, particularly when we add Vernon Reed to this conversation. So I think he, I, I get the feeling from your article, part of his problem was, oh, Eric Clapton finally wrote a protest song, but it wasn't about, it wasn't about things that I would have, I, Robert Cray would have expected to have in common with him, right? It was a little bit jarring in in that sense. Well, I think Robert Cray, and just bear in mind, the guy who opened up for Eric Clapton when I saw him when I was 15 was Robert Cray. Mm -hmm. So Robert Cray, over the years, he's played in all sorts of, he's opened for Clapton millions of times. He's played all sorts of blues festivals when Steve Ray Vaughan, Clapton, and Buddy Guy, and Robert Cray played that concert in 1990, and Steve Ray Vaughan got on the helicopter and died. You know, Robert Mm -hmm. Cray was there. I mean, he threw, Clapton threw Robert Cray's bachelor party. But what was really interesting is that he wanted to actually have this conversation because he wanted to break it off publicly, mm. Cray. Yeah. And yeah. what happened is he heard this song and he heard this line that you played, do you want to be a free man or do you want to be a slave? And he's like, hmm, what's that mean exactly? Are you, is he saying the lockdown is like slavery? So he wrote Clapton an email and uh, Clapton and he had an exchange and it wasn't satisfactory to, to Robert. And he just cut it off. He pulled out of a tour that he was gonna open. I mean, he really cost himself some money, but he feels like he can't do it. But also I got the sense that this wasn't an, a sudden thing. I mean, maybe the last act was a sudden thing, but he's been watching Clapton over the years and he's been uneasy for whatever reason. I mean, the reasons he gave were one, he said that he was had no sense of humor that Cray would go up to him and make a joke or talk to him. And he just would be so kind of cold about it. He didn't like that. He remembers Clapton talking about being for fox hunting, which had been outlawed in England. And Clapton was like somehow in favor of it. Mm -hmm. 
Craig was like, what's that all about? And then finally, you know, these anti-lockdown songs. But Clapton, it seems like he has no either knowledge or concern about how any of these things will play out. Yeah, so Jeff, just as we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon, but you know, between the Cray thing and the comments of of Vernon Reed, the guitarist from Living Color, I mean, I don't know. You really got me thinking here about Clapton's entire journey. You know, Clapton comes on the scene as one of many white appropriators of. Uh, of a form of black music about which he appears to be very, very respectful, except during his Keep England White tirade that you just talked about earlier, long time ago, very drunk, we get that, uh, but then doesn't seem to have any causes, except obviously the rights of fox hunters, definitely a cause worth dying for. Uh, and, you know, and then in a time of social foment, in a time, you know, in de- over decades of different kinds of social foment, doesn't seem to have very much to say. I think I can kind of understand why black musicians would th- would be thinking, oh, until they started jabbing vaccines into the arms of white people, you didn't really have a big social agenda, did did you? Now you do. I mean, I, I feel like that's a little bit what I'm I'm seeing running through some of the comments that you got. Well. You know, I'd say Vernon Reed actually called me last night because he wanted to talk to me about the story after seeing it. And uh, we talked a lot about race. We talked a lot about music and the blues. And what we talked about is it's really interesting to think of all these guys in the 60s, like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and all these guys. They all were obsessed with the blues. And they all there are all these records like London Howlin' Wolf Sessions, London Muddy Water Sessions. And Muddy Waters or Chuck Berry or Howlin' Wolf would record with all these white guys who were in their 20s. And, you know, these guys were billionaires by that point. The white guys, they all bought castles. They were totally isolated. I don't know what they'd read or not read. But I wish Howlin' Wolf was around. I mean, not just to see him play, but I wish Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf were around and we could ask them, what did you guys think of all these guys? Did you respect them? Did you feel respected? Did you think boy, at least I'm getting a paycheck finally, and I can do this. I think they made sort of a, you know, some kind of a deal internally. You know, the same deal Louis Louis Armstrong made when he accepted that there was all this racism and he was going to perform even in the most racist places. And he was very smart and knew exactly what was going on, but was going to just tolerate it because he was making a living. So where that leaves Eric Clapton and what that means about how he feels about race and how he under what he understands about the blues, I don't know. Well, hopefully the Eric Clapton story will be continued, and, and perhaps in a better way. But for now, uh, we encourage you to read what happened to Eric Clapton, a uh, piece by our guest here, Jeff Edgers, national arts reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. And the rest of you, thanks for listening. Just don't work on you.